Hello, I'm Alex Rockkeen. I'm a barrister at Third and Essex Chambers specialising in mental capacity law. And I'm really pleased to be joined in the shed virtually today uh, by Gareth Owen. It's going to be a slightly different conversation to some of the ones we've had uh, in the past uh, I've recorded, because I think at one point Gareth is going to ask me some questions. Um, but right now I want to go ask Gareth some questions. The first and foremost of them is, Gareth, would you mind introducing yourself for people who, who don't already know you? Yeah, of course. Uh, so I'm Gareth Owen. I'm an academic psychiatrist at King's College London, and I led on the Mental Health, Mental Health and Justice Project, which uh, we're going to talk about, um, amongst other things today. And uh, I remember being in your shed, um, Alec, last time I was in your shed was during lockdown, when I think we all had long hair, because there <laughs> no, was nowhere to get your hair cut. So it feels, it feels like we've made real progress um, since then. We have, we have. And I mean, in terms of the, men so the Mental Health and Justice Project, I I'll actually suggest people go and watch the first discussion we did. But the Mental Health Project, Mental Health and Justice Project is now, well, to me at least, very sadly, effectively come to an end. There's a sort of little bit of dissemination left, but the project itself has come to an end. Uh, and one of the things I really wanted to sort of ask you about, Gareth, um, as the kind of fearless overall leader of the project, well, first, just for people who've never heard of it, what, what was it? And what, what were you sort of hoping to achieve with it? Well, it was an experiment in many respects in, in um, you know, what might be called strong interdisciplinarity. Um, and it was, you know, called mental health and justice. And we gave ourselves a broad theme, which was really around um, protection versus empowerment. Um, and we um, were sort of strongly interdisciplinary in the sense that we were combining, um, you know, big disciplines um, across the university, psychiatry, law, social science, um, experimental psychology, um, and then had a lot of partners as well. So the key ones were policy, um, service user involvement, and um, participatory arts. So we were a big project going across big divisions actually within the university and reaching out to, um, uh, you know, a lot of um, non-academic uh, players. So some some of those were activist organizations, some were, you know, as you, as you well know, um, Alex, the courts, and um, some were big mental um, providers of healthcare, particularly mental health providers. So it was, um, a large project, sometimes described as an octopus, uh, which had this, this strongly interdisciplinary um, intention. And it was five years. So we, we, we held together um, through thick and thin uh, over a five-year process uh, supported uh, by the Wellcome Trust. And as you say, it, it's in a dissemination phase now and um, all the fruits of the work, and there are many, um, are now um, consolidated in in a uh, in a project website. So, I mean, thinking about interdisciplinarity, I mean, obviously, there's between disciplines, and one view you could say, well, anything which has got you know more than one author from more than one discipline is interdisciplinary. But I don't think that's kind of necessarily well. Certainly, not my view of inter of interdisciplinarity, and I don't think it's yours. I'm just wondering. From your experience, and I know that there's a book chapter that I'm going to kind of be able to point people to, so sort of look more into it. But from your experience of, of of working with this, what what does it mean to actually be properly interdisciplinary? 
and, and why is it necessary to be interdisciplinary in relation to you know the problem of empowerment and protection say yeah i think um interdisciplinarity is best suited to problems which different disciplines um would would consider as shared problems or maybe shared problems that they fight over so yeah. you know they they um they want to say it's our problem it's you know it's, it's our discipline's problem primarily um but if but of course for, the, for them to work there has to be a sense that the problem is shared and that to work together you're more likely to generate solutions um which um are better so that there's a sort of the sum is going to be greater than the, than um, uh, the whole is going to be greater than the sum of its parts. You know, there's got to be a kind of you know, I think there has to be a um, a buy-in on on that on that premise. So, and uh, the I mean, the kind of problem which we all which we shared was um, was really a kind of version of of um, you know who decides. So, in the setting of mental health vulnerability. Um, you know, do you go to empowerment or autonomy so that the person primarily decides with suitable supports? Um, or do you go to um, protection where where other people, perhaps those in authority, have got certain decision-making um, responsibilities? Um, and that problem is, um, isn't one discipline. I mean, you know, psychiatry is going to have a view on it, but, you know, law most certainly is going to have a view on it. Um, and, um, you know, social sciences and different branches within social sciences and psychology will too. So uh, it's a problem. Everybody can identify it as a problem, um, but it's not one which any discipline is going to, um, well, I think any kind of generous discipline is going to say is theirs and theirs alone. Uh, and if you're looking at it um, from your discipline, uh, well, if, I think if you're looking if you're looking at it from outside, so let's say you're not an academic at all, you know you're a practitioner or you're a policymaker or you're a carer, for example. Um, what you're primarily going to be wanting are, you know, approaches, practice policy approaches, um, in which the problem has been considered as much as possible um, from all of those points of view. Uh, so I think there is in a, in an area like ours with the problems that we were taking on, there is a bit of, there is, I think, an, an imperative to get out of your discipline uh, or to talk uh, with others in different in different disciplines, because um, because policy practice ultimately is interdisciplinary. I mean, it isn't it isn't just going to be going to psychiatry or it isn't just going to be going to law and it's not just going to be listening to. Uh, carers or service users or social scientists or psychologists so I think it, it, it's it's it what we did is necessary but that doesn't mean it was uh it was simple and um problems like ours have sometimes been described as wicked mm. uh, in the sense that there is uh you know there are issues around how they're defined um, there, there may be aspects of them in which, which are truly difficult to resolve. There may be painful compromises. Um, so they're wicked in that sense, but um, facing them squarely and, and um, uh, you know, responding to them with a with a with an interdisciplinary approach um, 
feels necessary and i think we all i think everybody in the project did feel that actually um um at the beginning middle and end and just thinking through the challenges so thinking through the challenges of interdisciplinarity i mean what do you think the biggest the biggest challenge i mean five years middle of a pandemic and we could just talk about logistical challenges but yeah um, almost more conceptual, what do you think the biggest challenge yeah. is? Well, we, we started it out with the Wellcome Trust um, uh, with a kind of big tent. I mean, partly that was the intention, but it was also something that the Wellcome Trust wanted. Um, so we, we, we started with a, with, a, with a very big meeting in which there were lots of different um, players and then sculpted, um, you know, sculpted a project uh and you know with as i said this big this big general theme and i think we did as best as we could to um give the project uh as much initial coherence as we as we were able um but there was always i think through the through the whole project a kind of tension between its coherence its intellectual coherence if you like and leaving things out so you know we wanted to be very inclusive big tent um, but that also was, you know, introducing a, a challenge around coherence. So we, we were struggling, I think, with that tension through the project. I think made progress actually in the end around a kind of um, coherence of richness, if you like. Um, and I think in certain, in some areas, there, there, there really was the coherence achieved. But there was always that tension. And then I think the other challenge was, um, which was more fundamental, I mean, in the sense that it wasn't, you know, kind of, you know, pandemic related and so forth, although maybe the pandemic intensified things, um, was, a, was about values. You know, I think, again, this is this is an area where at the very beginning, well, it's an area where where there are different values and those, those values um, do not necessarily always align. Um, and that's, I think, to be expected because values are plural um, yeah. and move in different directions. At the beginning, we probably didn't think that much about that. Um, I think because we were perhaps overall committed to the idea that in an area like this, um, it's so important to get going with interdisciplinarity and, um, you know, the sum is always going to be greater than, um, the whole is always going to be greater than the sum of its parts. And so, and we'd had experience, some of us had had experience of working together in interdisciplinary, inter, interdisciplinary ways. And so I think there was a sort of confidence just to get on with it. So we didn't think very much about values at the beginning. And I think that was, I mean, partly we didn't have the time and we were doing something new, but I think that in retrospect was a problem or a deficit. I think we we could have done more on that actually, because I think over time we realized that, um, you know, there are these different values or their plural notions of what justice is, for example. Um, and so there was always, I think, that inherent tension as well. And so that was always going to be be challenging and require balance. Yeah, yeah. No, I remember vividly some conversations at different stages in different venues and different things where sometimes it really was almost a recognition, but it was almost that point where you recognise actually just up front, you know what, we are coming at this differently. And yeah. that's fine. And it's how you then, but it's that interesting thing, then you think about, well, how am I having the value set around sharing the difference? And it's yeah. that, and then it's the sort of the values are maybe less about the, the values relating to the thing which is being interrogated and more about 
how you share together, you know, we're all committed to plural, you know, pluralism, or we're all committed to X, Y, and Z. And I agree. I think it's with, with something else, which I think we will we'll come on to talk about a little bit later. I think, you know, going into that much more, I think I've certainly been informed by the MHJ project about like, if we go into this, let's go into this being really upfront and clear. We may all be thinking about this differently. And then, you know, how you think that through. So, yeah, no, it was a really, it's really interesting to reflect on that. And I know I just, I mentioned a little a while ago, but I know there's a, there's a chapter you've written reflecting on, on this, which I will, I will link to from the, from the website, from my website. Um, and it's also on the mental health and justice website. Um, yeah. That's, that's right. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I, I mean, I think one of the things to say about that, that, that chapter is that inevitably it's, 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 I mean, I, I was the project lead, but it, it was ne- it, it was something as as you know complex and multifaceted as this. It's always going to be my view. You know, it's always yeah. going to be what, you know how how I experienced it and saw it. But there, we, in that chapter, also we we I try and go into some of some use, using some examples, so it doesn't just it's not in, it doesn't it's not entirely abstract. Um, but there's also interesting questions about what interdisciplinarity is, and I think that's actually to some extent an open question. Yeah. Um, and a very interesting one. And um, our experience in MHJ, I think, was, um, yeah, I think it it, it gave us all, um, you know, some better grasp on that, on what, you know, on, on what the question is and what possible answers are. Yeah, yeah. So um, how to do one, how to do one better. Yes, which I think is, I mean, in a way, that's how one proceeds, isn't it? Isn't how we knowledge proceeds is, you know, as it were, sometimes avoiding mistakes which people have made before because you've been very upfront about, you know, if you're going to do this again, perhaps try doing it differently. So, yeah, I mean, not very much. Yeah. So as I said at the beginning, this is an unusual conversation in the sense of that the tables turn very slightly and the tables are now, if you can hear a creaking, it's because the table is turning <laughs> because... Unusually, I'm slightly going to be in the uh, in in the, the the other on the other side of the the questions because there are two publications we really want to sort of chat about today. One is is the chapter that you just we've just been talking about, and another is a paper which has just appeared in a medical law review, which which I led on. I mean, you you Gareth were a co-author along with uh, Scott Kim and Nuala Kane. I need to make sure I properly emphasize their their huge contributions, but it was at the end of the day my name appears first, so. Uh, Gareth, do you want to kind of quiz me about it, interrogate me, challenge me? What on earth was I doing? You know. Yeah, definitely. I mean, so the paper is uh, called "Mental Capacity, Legitimacy, and the Goals of Capacity Assessment." It's out now with uh, with Medical Law Review, um, and I mean, it was in many respects a fruit of interdisciplinarity, wasn't it? But it was um, a paper which had a legal um, emphasis. Uh, it came at the end of one of the work streams on, contest, on contest, contested capacity, which which you and I um, co-led. And as you say, you're you were you're the first author. So, Alex, tell us about this paper. Why why did we do it, and and um, what are its main its main messages? So yeah, I mean, the contested capacity work stream was a we were really trying to get to grips with the idea that. There are some capacity assessments which are just in and in and of themselves necessarily difficult. You can eliminate lots of unnecessary complexity. And I mean, just an example, unnecessary complexity is getting people to make decisions at a point when you don't actually need a decision. 
or not being clear about relevant information. I mean, really kind of things which are practically every day make a real difference. People aren't or aren't given enough time to do it or aren't listening to what the person is saying. All of those sorts of things, you can sort of say, let's try and eliminate those. There are some which are just fundamentally difficult. And then we kind of came at it very much. I mean, our starting position was, and I think remained throughout the project, was the response to that difficulty is to think about, well, how can we more be, how can we be more transparent? How can we be more accountable in making those determinations, making those assessments, making those determinations? And when I say we, I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't think as a lawyer, I would regularly make capacity determinations, but I mean we, because many different people could be involved in thinking about capacity. So we kind of, Nula led on some really important work, Kane led on some really, Nula Kane led on some really important work, kind of empirical work, looking at how the courts think about things as a way to then set up a framework for thinking, here are tools we can use to try and think through how to translate the language of the Mental Capacity Act into things that people might find it difficult to do. We might, you know, somebody who appears not to appreciate, how do we house that sensibly within the act? But underneath it all, I think we were always really aware, and I was always really aware, that one counter-argument or counterpoint in relation to it being difficult is a kind of existential challenge to, well, it's not difficult, it's just this is all at one level could be said to be a professional conspiracy. So in other words, it's very idea that capacity, you know, what, what's the point in trying to do better, better capacity determinations if this is all a fundamentally illegitimate project? And so there's because and that that challenge really comes from, I mean, it predates in some ways, but I think it really comes significantly from the committee, well, the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, and then much more the way in which the silences in the convention, Article 12, the right to legal capacity, have been filled in subsequently by the Committee on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities and as much, if not more, those associated with them, in particular academics associated with them. And coming from a very strong standpoint of, yeah, effectively, I mean, this is not exact terminology, but in essence, this is, you know, there's nothing natural about mental incapacity. You can't properly measure it. And any attempt to found anything, any system of authority, whether that's giving authority to you as a doctor or giving authority to a judge on the basis of that assertion of incapacity is just fundamentally illegitimate. And so the paper, well, the paper actually sort of evolved. Originally, it was more of a paper to ground and explain why we did the capacity guide, which you can now find on the web, which really is the practical tools. And as it kind of went on, it morphed more into actually really trying to, in a way, almost put on onto the record why we were thinking from, and, and I was thinking and, and others were thinking in, in the team were thinking about, well, is that challenge associated with the CRPD? Is it really one which, it doesn't have traction in reality. In, 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 it's got huge traction in, in academic circles. In reality, in legal policy reality, it, it simply doesn't. The courts keep being asked to accept it and in different countries they say no. Legislatures keep being told, remove any concept of, of mental capacity, not, not legal capacity, which is something different, but remove any foundational concept of mental capacity. They don't. And you know, one level, it could be, well, they're all wrong, but actually underpinning it, it's, well, should that challenge, should that CRPD-associated challenge actually 
know, be listened to? Is it really a challenge which has, has really got such fundamental legitimacy to it that it just should be seen as pulling away a foundational plank of, you know, I introduced myself as a mental capacity lawyer. You know, should it be basically saying you, Alex, are doing a fundamentally illegitimate job, at least in as, in as much as you call yourself that? So can I, can, I, can I ask, Alex, as you said, you're a mental capacity lawyer um, an academic and, and a practitioner barrister, and you've been very involved with the Mental Capacity Act for, for a really long time, um, particularly in England. And, um, you know, I, I, I mean, there was sort of, you, you talk about in the paper, there's really two paradigm shifts, aren't, aren't there, that one's talking about here. One is um, the paradigm shift towards the, the modern notion of mental capacity, which is in the Mental Capacity Act. And that's a paradigm shift that you were, you know, I imagine as a lawyer, you were very taken taken by, you know, you found basically compelling um, and, um, you know, wanting very much to um, uh, develop that notion um, to, you know, to start to to, um, to get that paradigm to, to, to really be implemented. Um, so that's one paradigm shift. And, but the, the, the paradigm shift, the second paradigm shift is the one you're talking about, isn't it, that comes from the committee, which is very much more fun foundational um and is questioning the very um well what in the paper you laid out very nicely we lay out that there's this basic idea that there are going to be situations where people are unable to make decisions and the law is always going to have to have mechanisms for those situations now the second paradigm shift which is being led was led on by the committee in a group of academic activists was challenging that. Yeah. And so the paper is, I mean, it goes through this detailed analysis of A, why that's not working in practice, but also, and maybe you can speak to this a little bit, what the legitimacy doubt is for, for, for that challenge. Yeah, so, I mean, I suppose I should say, I mean, I, I want to say two things. The, the first is, I think, and we try and make this clear in the paper, I think in some ways, some of this is beginning maybe to be water under the bridge. The committee in in more recent times in relation to, for instance, how it's approaching Australia and, and recommendations in law reform in relation to Australia, which is which do seem to be based on an idea of functional capacity. The committee endorsed that. So it might be seen as a tacit. Actually, maybe this wasn't we've got off on the wrong foot here. So I'm much more interested in being constructive than destructive. So the paper really wants to emphasise that's a really helpful constructive move, if you see what I mean. And it's really helped us blast us out of any form of complacency that, you know, this is for the best and the best of all possible worlds, the way in which we've done things. But I think the kind of, uh, but, but to go back to the kind of, is it a challenge, this, you know, the kind of the legitimacy of the challenge, it seems to me that, that one of the things I was, one of the things that's really struck me and really strikes me is that capacity or some concept, like a modern concept of capacity. So in other words, it's functional, it's time specific, it's decision specific, it's not status-based, it's outcome, not outcome-based. Something like that just actually underpins so many things. And the, the challenge from those people who are, and I understand why, very cross about 
the status quo, is very much focused on very narrow areas. So, for instance, compulsory mental health treatment, say. But what about the person in accident and emergency who's just been brought in after a car crash? What about the person entering into a mobile phone contract? What about entering into marriage? What about consenting to sex? What about disposing of one's property after, you know, making a will? I mean, there, this just underpins so much of the law when you actually get into it, that if you're going to say, no, that very un that underpinning concept, which may not be very well worked out. And I got very interested in the work of Cass Sunstein about an imperfect construction, imperfectly constructed idea. It may not yeah. be philosophically brilliant, but it functions and it allows people actually go back to this values idea. It allows people with very, very different values to come together and actually just achieve something. Very different values, protections, values, empowerment, values, whatever. If you're going to say we're going to replace that, it seems to me, and very much seemed to me, John, the writer of the paper, and I'm not alone. In, I, don't think, I, th I don't think I'm alone in thinking this. I mean, definitely my three fellow authors, including you, don't aren't, aren't alone in thinking this. And I think actually many people probably think this in different sorts of ways. You've got to have a completely compelling, as it were, total answer to how you just resolve all the problems removing that um, will give. And I just, it, at one level, I would love to believe, I would love to believe there was something which means we could just move away from obviously difficult capacity assessments, obviously situations where things are done wrong. But I suppose one of my, to the extent that it's a problem, I spend so much time dealing with complexity, you know, complex cases or complex situations or thinking, hang on a minute, how is that going to affect people across a great swathe of things if you're thinking about law reform? That it's too different. That's interesting. So in a way, what I'm hearing is that part of the process you went through of writing the paper was to realise just how um, how many different roles this, this concept was playing across law. Um, and, and so in that sense, how foundation, foundational it is, really um you know to the law yeah it is it is and i mean just to give one very small example i mean i talked about sex a minute ago i find it really interesting that i mean there's been a big case here recently about capacity to make decisions about sex and it's really difficult it's a genuinely really difficult issue and actually at one level it does show some of this is about social construction of course it is it's about what do you think everybody should be able to understand when they're making decisions about sex. But trying to remove any idea that you're allowed to have some analysis of, can the person make that decision? Even those people who seem to really, and I understand where they come from, want to say, let's move, let's just make this all irrelevant. Even they seem to end up in a position where if you don't have that, you have something where consent doesn't really mean to anybody looking from the exterior at any level that this that a consent is manifested which just doesn't feel like a consent and so there you do have something where you know to pick an example you've got different values you've got different ideas you've got different things all grounding around that and if you, unless you're going to have some way of saying i've got an answer to it which serves all of those needs and all of those social purposes i think you know as we try to point out in the article be quite careful and certainly 
I mean, to think about if one goes back to Thomas Kuhn and what paradigm means, I mean, the idea of a paradigm shift, a paradigm shift occurs when the old way of doing things is now completely illegitimate because it simply doesn't answer all of the various things which are required of it. And there is a new model which does answer all of it. And I do think it's, I do think it's true to say that no, uh, now if one tried to defend an idea of capacity which was status-based or outcome-based, it is a fundamentally illegitimate idea. We are in a position where I think it's very much the case that to say there's been a paradigm shift, as people keep saying, to the idea that mental capacity is effectively illegitimate, I think it's just, it's not true. And I also think, as I try to develop in the article, lead on the article, is I think there are very good reasons for asking whether we'd actually ethically, apart from anything else, want it to be true. But I do yeah. want to say, I do want to just, I do want to just emphasize that it's one of the things I wanted to do in the article, really lead on in the article, was was not try and put it to bed because I'm not arrogant enough to think, right, we can split the world to bed and move on, but really try and show, you know, the evolution of, of where the committee has gone as well to show, yeah. actually, you know, and there is no harm in saying, or no, you know, it's entirely appropriate to, to, to praise the committee for saying, right, here you go. We've recognised the Australian Law Reform Commission proposals based on an idea of functional capacity. You know, here we go, perhaps we can, you know, this can be a shared understanding. And we've everybody has learned an awful lot from, apart from us, the very process of having to explain why people do what they do, as opposed to what well, we just do it. Yeah. So we've had this one paradigm shift toward the functional test, um, a second attempt at a paradigm shift, which has made us, in some sense, realise just how foundational these matters are. Um, and then, you know, your, the reflections, which I very much share about um, uh, that being in danger of almost being a thought too far. Um, you know, you, 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 it, it's got uh, its own uh, consequences, which seem, um, well, its, its own consequences, which are, are quite troubling and um and uh well well you you put it very nicely i think in terms of um you know the notion of paradigm that it's it's not it actually hasn't achieved the paradigm shift on the very terms of what paradigm shift means so we're still working through this first paradigm shift <laughs> so we're yeah. still working with uh you know the modern functional test of capacity um turns out that it's um pretty you know the, the 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 law needs this and this idea works with it in a variety of different situations um and so that's where we've got to is that right with with um with work stream six in the mental health and justice project i mean we also have the we, we also have the work which you talked about um referred to earlier around you know the practical stuff around guideline development yeah um, which is Kind of, kind of crucially important, really, because the idea is if they just exist as ideas and can't be trusted in practice or interpreted in practice, um, uh, are going to have a legitimacy problem of their own, aren't they? Oh, completely. And I think it's, I think it would be, I mean, I've, sadly, as much as I'd love to keep, keep, keep talking about this, because you know how bothered I am about it, I think sadly time is against us. But I think I would emphasise that 
I mean, you know, Workstream 6 made, I mean, we call it in a paper, a modest contribution. I mean, hopefully not the kind of Jonathan Swift modest suggestion. But, you know, there's, you know, we're not arrogant enough to think we've solved everything, but at least yeah. trying to bring, I mean, to reel it right back to what you were talking about, proper interdisciplinary analysis. So thinking yeah. about it, not from one discipline, recognising that because it's a shared problem, it's a shared yeah. problem of does this person have this capacity? And it's shared between law, psychiatry, social work, philosophy. It's also shared as between the person and a carer or the person and a professional. How do we think it through? Because at the end of the day, the consequences for that person and for other people are very significant of either getting it wrong and having a decision made in their name when it wasn't, it's actually their decision to make or getting it wrong and letting that person's, I mean, to be really crude about it, letting that person say no, when actually, for whatever reason at that point in time, they're not, they're not, it's not their true decision. And we walk away and we go, right, well, we just honoured their autonomy. Really? Yeah. So the stakes are really high. We just have to keep kind of working at it, I think. So the stakes are high, as you say, and there's a new challenge, isn't there now, which the, the functional um, test is, um, well, there's a, new, there's a new challenge in town, so to speak. Um, and this is the matter of assisted dying, isn't it? Which we all, always knew was around. It's, it's growing in its significance now as a, as a, um, as a social discussion. Um, you know, it's more and more uh, countries are, are legislating for it. It's really very much on the agenda now. And, there's a, and it's putting a lot of pressure, um, new types of pressure, on the functional test it is it is i know now, mhj was never we were never dealing with this this problem um but it's there isn't it it is and we're recording this just at the just as the health and social care select committee kind of it's it's call for evidence in its inquiry into assisted dying is closing and so i've been you and i and, and, and a number of other people have been thinking very much about kind of the capacity issues here and i think it's it's definitely right so i mean it's, it's a a test on you know the functional test for even things like do we even have shared agreement about what the information is you need mm -hmm. to be able to make a decision about assistance with dying i mean really have we had that discussion and i think that went by i say that i mean as i've been a societal discussion and then the other thing which i know i know in mhj we we always knew we wanted to think about not from an assisted dying perspective but but sort of generally, and never really quite got there. But this brings it out in spades is the sufficiency. So what if you technically you have got capacity to make that decision? Is it really enough to say capacity? You know, is, is it good enough if you're making that decision, for instance, to seek assistance because you aren't being offered suitable alternative, good quality palliative care or social care or you know anything like that then it suddenly becomes I don't know, you know how much weight are we really putting on it so it's yeah no you uh, you put it very well I mean we you know the, the assisted dying and things in that zone are just putting huge weight on it huge I mean huge. it's a it's an area of decision making which the mental capacity act just hasn't and this sort of tradition of law hasn't really had to address has it I mean we it's been thinking about treatment decisions, residence decisions, you know, property and affair financial decisions. Yeah. Um, but here now you've got a decision about death, isn't it? Life or death. And death yeah. is, you know, it's often been remarked, isn't it? That death is, you know, one of those areas, a bit like kind of, 
which is difficult to look at square it squarely you know a bit like kind of the center of the sun <laughs> difficult to look at it directly yeah and um, i think this I, I agree and i think uh, i'm going to cut across you only because zoom is about to tell me we, we're about to out of time but I, I think it's one and it's an area where we're still grappling with how we have the discussion about how to think about it. So that values point you were making earlier is, is just hugely important about how one recognises that engaging with people who may hold very different values in terms of how you have the discussion about how to move forward. And a research first approach to agree. what we I think all yeah. agree is a very, is a complex policy space. Yeah, no, I agree. Gareth, sorry, I didn't mean to cross, well, I did mean to cross across you only because of the, the perils of Zoom. Uh, this has been much longer than a normal one, but really in some ways it could be seen as two conversations for the price of one. So Gareth, thank you very much indeed for your time um, in coming into the shed and also interrogating me so politely. Thanks again, Alex. Bye. Brilliant. Bye. <laughs>